in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 33. If you've been with us for the whole study of Romans thus far, you'll recall that Paul is writing a letter to a church he's never visited. That doesn't mean he doesn't know anyone in Rome. He does know some people because they've traveled around together or he's met them in other places. But he's writing to a congregation that he's never visited who are comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And He's writing this letter kind of as an introduction of himself and his ministry because he's hoping that the Roman church will assist him in furthering his missionary activity all the way to Spain. And Rome and Italy is kind of the westernmost part of the empire that he will be going to before he launches all the way to the west into the regions of Spain. And so this letter is an introduction. It's background. It's who I am and what I do. And I think he took this occasion to say, I'm going to lay out the gospel, the message that I proclaim, in a way that can be clearly understood logically, systematically, from start to finish. We don't write letters much anymore, do we? (laughs) Hardly ever write a letter. And, uh, you know, an email communication is maybe as good as it gets, and that's usually all lowercase and lots of abbreviations and horrible grammar and (laughs) poor spelling, and (laughs) sometimes you hit the send button before you ought to. So imagine writing a letter like this, you know, 16 chapters in our Bible writing this out, putting it all down, but Paul wants to make sure that that his message is well understood. It's the message of the gospel. And we're at one of those turning points in in this letter, in this explanation. Like many of Paul's writings, he takes the first portion to explain the teaching. That's what the word doctrine really means, the teaching. And he's been explaining the teaching about salvation. He's been explaining the doctrine. All the way from chapter 1 to to these verses, this is the gospel. We're about to turn the page to a new segment of the letter. In fact, in my Bible, it's literally turning the page. I'm on page 987, and when I get to verse 36... And I flip the page to 988, that's where chapter 12 begins. So I'm literally turning the page. And when I do that, from chapter 12 to the end of the book is all about how to live it. Chapters 1 through 11 are what it is. What it is that God does in us. All the background, all the teaching, all the richness in Jesus Christ. But you know, if we just kind of leave it there, it's like, okay, that's great. But chapter 12 says, okay, if you got it and you have Jesus, here's how it looks. 
when you go out in the world. Here's how it looks when you go to the store. Here's how it looks when you go to work. Here's how it looks when you go home. Here's how it looks in the neighborhood. Here's how it looks in the church. This is practical application of the Spirit-filled life in the community, in the church, in the family. Paul says this is how it looks. This is how you live it. It starts in chapter 12, goes all the way to the end of the book. Well, the last chapters mostly say hi to so-and-so and greet so-and-so and tell this other person I'm looking forward to seeing him, but... 12, 13, 14, and 15 are all taken up with the practical application of the Christian life. And so Paul's at a turning point in his writing. And at this particular juncture, he's looking back over all that he has said thus far. Some people feel that these verses may only apply to chapters 9, 10, and 11, but it's much broader than that. Certainly 9, 10, and 11 are involved. We've been studying doctrines about election and, and, and predestination and God's sovereign choices and, and all those kinds of things. You know, and this is, this is where the Calvinists and the Arminians really start fighting and fussing and, and all of that kind of stuff gets down to the nitty-gritty. But Paul has more than that in mind. Paul has the whole previous 11 chapters and he looks back to the beginning where he described the lostness of human beings and friends without Jesus Christ we are lost we are lost you know Angela you, you, you talked about one of the sins being maybe the worst I don't know if there is a worst sin is sin is sin you know it has different consequences different effects Certainly in society, it has different impacts and there's different levels of judgment. But before a holy God, sin is sin and we're all stained. And Paul looks back at that at the beginning and, and, and when he, by the time he takes us to chapter 3, he says there's none righteous, not one. There's no one that seeks God. There's no one looking for salvation. We've all gone astray. The, the poison of asps poisonous snakes is in our mouths, we're, we're vile, we're wicked, we're set on our own ways, we're apart from God, we're in the darkness. He says we're in a terrible condition. And then he begins to introduce God's plan, but God in Jesus Christ. Now apart from the law, a righteousness has been revealed by faith. That we can come to Jesus Christ and, and have our wicked past forgiven. We can have our sins cleansed now and forever. We can be made whole in Jesus Christ. We can be made the righteousness of God in Him. And Paul begins to expound on that and talk about how God has made a plan that will cleanse us entirely and make us acceptable in the presence of a holy God. But he doesn't leave us there. You know, so many believers only get to the salvation part. They only get to the cleansing part. And, and they don't realize God has made provision for living. Not just for eternity, but salvation is right now. God is right in the present moment. And this moment in my life, I can have the Holy Spirit living in me. I can be changed. My, my old habits can be broken. My selfish ways can be changed to 
selflessness. God can fill me with His presence. I can overcome bad habits. I can see victory over sin. I can experience transformation in my life. Paul begins to lay that out in Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7. He deals with the struggle and then he leads us to that great pinnacle in Romans 8 starting with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then taking us through to, uh, if God has already given us Jesus Christ, if God is for us and has already given us Christ, how will He not also with Him freely give us everything else? Who can lay a charge against God's elect? Who can bring us down? Who can defeat us? And Paul leads us in that great, perspective of God's love and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. What a marvelous, marvelous testimony as Paul contemplates the power of God. Wow, what a salvation. And then Paul says, what about the Jew? What what about God's people? What about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. What about those people? Has God forgotten them? You Gentiles have been brought in. Is God turning His back on the Jews? And He says, oh, let me tell you, not at all. God has revealed Himself through Israel. He's revealed Himself through Abraham, called Him out, man of faith. Abraham is the father of the faithful. He's called out Isaac and Jacob, renamed him Israel, prince with God. He's called out Joseph. He's raised up Moses. He's called out the judges and the prophets. He raised up a David. He's raised up the Isaiahs and Jeremiahs. God throughout his history has called on these people to bring his message to the world. He has not forgotten them. Paul says, I want you to know just as he reached out to you Gentiles and brought you into the household of faith, making the church of the living God through Jesus Christ now, One day he's going to come back and reach his people Israel again. And there's going to be a time when when we all come together in this great family of faith. And as Paul thinks of salvation history throughout the course of the human race, he comes to these last verses that I call the doxology. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable, how unfathomable are His ways. Paul is is stopping to kind of catch his breath and look back on what he's been teaching, and he says, this is amazing. This is amazing. Oh, the wisdom, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to think that wisdom and knowledge are synonyms, but they're not. Knowledge is just factual information. Knowledge is just knowing things. People can have all kinds of education. They can have all kinds of degrees. They can have all kinds of training and teaching and still be dumber than a stump. Because they don't know what to do with it. They have no wisdom. You know, have you ever heard the saying, educated beyond their intelligence? That happens sometimes. People get more training than they know what to do with. They're educated beyond their intelligence. 
Knowledge does not necessarily lead anywhere. Knowledge puffs up, the scripture says, in human beings. For human beings, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where it really starts. You've got to know who's on top. But for God, knowledge and wisdom, he has all knowledge and all wisdom. He has everything of both. He knows everything there is to know. And he always makes the right choice. He always makes the right decision. He never makes a mistake. He is always aware of all the possibilities. He knows all the contingencies. He can see down every trail. He knows the end from the beginning. And he always chooses rightly. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's amazing. He is all-knowing omniscient the theologians say he is all knowing he knows everything and always chooses wisely he says how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways you know one of the things that i think must grieve the heart of god is when we fight and argue and bicker over theology now i'm here to tell you there's there's right ways and wrong ways of thinking (laughs) There's no question about that. And some of them are pretty insidious. It's important that we, that we worship God rightly and understand Him correctly. But Paul is telling us here, as he's been trying to lay out for us in 9, 10, and 11, the choices of God, the plan of God in Israel, you know, the certain things that God has predetermined and predestined, and people get all excited about that and worried, and, and they, they either push God into this, box that makes him look like some capricious, um, just uh, powerful person out there doing whatever he wants to with people just to get his own glory, as if that were his only objective. Then you have other people that 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 try to push the the love angle and the free will angle so much that God ends up looking weak and, and emaciated and unable to act. Neither of those positions is true. The Scripture reveals God as a God of love. It's amazing how many times that comes out. When Jesus went to explain God to Nicodemus in his mission, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. The heart of God is revealed. John tells us in his first letter, God is love. All through the Psalms, the loving kindness of the Lord is new every morning. His mercies endure forever. The the scripture reveals the character of God, but it also talks about his holiness, his judgment. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God in your sin, in rebellion, and God bringing judgment. That's a terrible thing. All of those things are true of God. He is holy. He is righteous. He dwells in unapproachable light, but He is full of tenderness and mercy and loving kindness. And Paul says you have to understand the character of God. It is true that His judgments are unfathomable and His ways are unsearchable, but we can trust Him. We can trust Him. We will never fully understand Him. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. God is infinite. You're finite. He knows everything. You're never going to know everything. 
So you're never going to understand everything. But what you can know and what you can understand is that God is trustworthy. God is faithful. God is holy. God is loving. He never violates his character. He never acts inconsistently with the revelation of his own will. Read the Ten Commandments and see the heart of God. Don't read it like ten rules. Read it like the character of God. And see the revelation of his person. Read the Gospels. And Paul says we come to understand that even though we cannot figure out every little detail, we can trust Him. He knows everything. He never makes a mistake. He never gets it wrong. He never comes to the end of the day and gets ready to go to sleep and says, boy, this has been a tough day. I've really messed up. In fact, he never even goes to sleep. The scripture says he never sleeps and he never slumbers. His eye is always on us. He never fails. He never leaves us. He's never far away because he's always right here. And so Paul says, if you get to the end of these few chapters and there's things you don't understand, he says his... his Judgments are unsearchable, his ways are unfathomable, but he is all-wise and all-knowing, and he never, ever errs. You can trust him. And then in verses 34 and 35, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counsel? Or who has given to him that it might be given back again? You know that passage that Paul is quoting from, who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor, comes from Isaiah 40. Handel put Isaiah 40 to music, and it's hard for me to read. I always want to sing it. But in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is bringing us back to a place where God is coming back to restore Israel to himself. And he says in verse 3 of Isaiah 40, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert in the highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. The breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Jerusalem, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with power, with might, his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Like a shepherd, he will lead his flock. 
tend his flock. In his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the nursing ewes. Can you see the tenderness of God in these verses? Gathering the lambs, carrying them uh, to his heart, cradling them close. And then Isaiah breaks into this great exaltation and says, Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? I want you to catch the questions that Isaiah is going to ask us. Have you been by the lake lately, by the river, by the streams? Have you been over to Lake Michigan and looked lately? Do you know how many handfuls is in Lake Michigan? In the Fox River? How about in the whole world? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? God knows. God knows the measure of the waters. Who has marked out the heavens by a span? A span is the distance between your thumb and the end of your pinky. Who has measured the heavens? Have you marked off the stars from one star to another with the span of your hand and you know the distance of the universe? God does. Who has calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance? Anybody know the volume of the earth by weight? The dust? Can you separate the dust from the water and from other things? God knows. God can. Doesn't mean he has to, but he knows. Who has weighed the hills in a pair of scales? Ha <laughs> ha. You see, Isaiah is bringing us to this point. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? Who is it that can give God good counsel? You know, a lot of times when we pray, that's just what we try to do. Here's what I think you ought to do, Lord. Well, we don't put it that way. We just kind of tell him the way he ought to act what he ought to do. But who can give God counsel? Who can tell him how to act? Who can presume to offer God wisdom? God is all-powerful. God can do anything. He has all authority. He has all capacity. He can measure the universe with his hand. Now, God doesn't really have a hand, you know that. That's an anthropomorphism for those of you that are into fancy words for figures, figures of speech. He doesn't have a hand, but if he had one, he could measure the universe with it. He doesn't need one. He is a spirit, and he has all power. And he can do anything he wants to do. We have a God who can act on our behalf. And then Paul goes to Job. And those of you that have read the book of Job, you remember those last chapters as he's talking, he says, Job, have you considered Leviathan, this incredible sea monster? Now, I don't know what Leviathan is. There's a lot of stuff I don't know, by the way. We've already covered that earlier in the sermon. I don't know what Leviathan was. We may even run into one one of these days. I don't know. 
But it was an incredible sea monster of some sort. And Job knew what it was. And God is challenging him. He says, think about, I made this creature. Would you like to have a tangle with him? That's basically the, the, the thing, you know. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of funny. He comes to the middle of the chapter and he says, if you ever land a hook in his mouth, it'll be a fight you never forget. You know, he's just kind of putting it out there. And, and, and in the middle of that passage in Job, he says, by the way, Job, in case you're wondering, I own everything. I, I, I not only made Leviathan, I own everything under the heavens. I own everything there is. I have everything. It's all mine. You know, we have deeds and titles to property, and we think we own it. We don't own it. It's God's. It's God's. There's people downstate right now that are finding out that they can't control their property. It's covered in water. What happened? You see, we have very little control over things. We just think we do. But God says, I own it all. Everything under the heavens is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, the property you think you own, the breath you're about to take, that's mine. I own you. I made you. I hold you together. I sustain you. I own everything. Who can presume to say that I'm indebted to them? Who can presume to say that God owes them something? Who owes me anything, God says, that I have to repay to them? And Paul remembers this passage, and he goes back and he says, Wow, you, you need to get your eyes on God. You need to see who he is for just a moment. You need to think about his plan, his purposes. And you need to realize how much power he has and how much authority and who you are. Who can claim that God owes you a debt? You owe your next breath to him who gives life. And then Paul comes to the very end and he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Have you thought about that lately? From him. From him are all things. You know, there's only one explanation for the way that, that people outside of Jesus Christ and some in Christ who are deceived describe the world in natural terms. Evolution and human control and bioengineering and all this kind of stuff as if we actually had charge of anything. It's pretty amazing. I cannot pick up a book hardly without seeing God. I can't take a walk without seeing God. I'm utterly amazed. You know how you can go into the bookstores and find these, they call them coffee table books. They're, they're nice books on different topics that you can get for about $10, $15. It's amazing. You lay them out for people to look at. Well, I look at them. I have one at home on kind of plants and flowers and stuff like that. And I was reading the other day, and I saw God right on the page. You know, you know where I saw him? I found out that there's a certain plant, I forget its name right now, 
but it, it needs the box turtle to spread its seeds. Because the only thing the box turtle really likes to eat is this plant. That's its favorite plant. And this plant needs the turtle because the other stuff... The, in fact, what, what really struck me was the box turtle is the only animal, the plant is poisonous. It's the only animal that can eat it without being affected. You know? But the box turtle can eat it. The only way the plant propagates is by the box turtle. I won't go into great detail here, but you can use your imagination. But this plant needs a box turtle to, to propagate. And I thought, that's pretty neat because the box turtle and the plant had to arrive at the same time. And they don't on the evolutionary scale. And then one day I was reading about orchids. Did I tell you this? About the mycelia, the fungus, and the roots of the orchid? I told you about this one. Okay. Or did I just tell my small group? Those are the only people nodding. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, let me tell you about orchids and mycelia fungi. Orchids, it's the largest species of flowers in the world, over 3,000 of them. It's pretty amazing. I didn't know there was that many orchids. You know, the only kind I remember from younger days is the ones that you, you bought your girl to wear on her wrist or, you know, her dress. But, but there's, there's 3,000 of these things. And Orchids need a fungus on their roots in order to gather the nutrients that, that are necessary and in order to, to propagate also. They rely on this fungus. But the fungus needs the orchid to live. And then I thought, okay, there's 3,000 orchids and there's this mycelia fungus, which is pretty cool. But then I realized it went on to say, and there's a specific type of mycelium for each orchid. So it's not just like one size fits all. It's like you've got to have the special fungus to go with the special orchid. I don't know if you've looked at evolutionary textbooks lately, but fungi appear a whole lot earlier in the scheme of things than orchids. But they need each other. They have a symbiotic relationship, and they need each other for survival. I see God there. I see God. I was reading a neurology book one day, and it was talking about the diameter of nerve fibers. And you know if they're too thin... They, they will not conduct fast enough for you to get your hand off of a hot stove. And if they're too big, they get bogged down in, in all it takes to keep them alive. And so a nerve cell has to be within angstrom units. Anybody know what an angstrom unit is? It's very small. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> right answer. It's little. It's, it's about a thousandth of a millimeter. It's tiny. And this nerve fiber has to be within a couple of angstrom units in diameter in order for it to be fast enough or slow enough to be exactly right to allow you to get your hand off the stove before you burn it too badly. And this evolved? This just happened? I don't think so. There's design. There's design in everything to the minute detail. It's amazing. And the, and the more you look and the more you learn and the more you listen, if your eyes are open, you can see God everywhere you look. Everything came from Him. Everything came from Him. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him is life, was life, and that life is the light of men. God is the source of everything. And God is the source of life. You know, I don't care how smart we get, how sophisticated we get, how, how capable we are in cloning and, and biotechnology and all that kind of stuff. I don't care how good it gets. No one ever has walked into a laboratory and taken dry or wet chemicals out of a box or a bottle and mixed them together and made a living thing. Because God is the source of life. God is the source of life. All we can do is play around with what's here. But we can't make it. God is the source of life. Everything comes from him. And then Paul says everything goes through him. You know, it's not just that it starts there. It's sustained by him. Paul, quoting the Greek philosophers in the affirmative in the book of Acts, says, In him we live and move and have our being. Apart from him we have nothing. We can't even survive. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the source of life. This moment, the writer of Hebrews says that he, Jesus Christ, holds all things together by the word of his power. Do you know one day, there's going to be a time in the universe when there is no universe. I think I can prove this from the book of Revelation, but I'm not preaching there this morning, so I won't go into detail. But, when we stand at the end of time before the judgment, the final judgment, we are safe in Jesus Christ, by the way. If you know him, you will not be judged, but you'll be there with God. And all the unrighteous will be resurrected. They'll be judged. And the Bible says, according to Peter, in that day, the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. I don't know if Peter had a, a full comprehension of chemistry. But I do believe that what he is saying is dead on the money, that the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. Because the wicked are going to look for a place to hide, and there's not going to be anywhere to go. There's not going to be a rock, there's not going to be a tree, there's not going to be a cave, there's not going to be anywhere to go, because there isn't going to be anything except God and people and the angels. There won't be any stars, there won't be any planets, there won't be any earth, there won't be any sun or moon. God doesn't need those things. He himself is light. I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine that, but just go with me there as far as you can. There will come a time in the universe when there is nothing. There isn't even a universe. There's only God and people and the angels. And there's nowhere to go because there isn't anywhere. Time and space have stopped. And everything is still before the bar of judgment. And God is on a throne, and he doesn't even need a throne, because he himself is majestic in the heavenlies. So we can't even talk about it without using terms that speak of universal things, but God is, is there. And in that moment, everything will be 
pointing to him. And there will be a judgment. And people without Jesus Christ will be banished to what the scripture calls the lake of fire. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Perfectly restored. In eternal glory. And we resurrected saints of the living God will live with him in the celestial city forever. Loving and caring and sharing and talking and visiting and worshiping in the presence of God. It starts with him. It's held together by him. It's going to him. He is the glorious one. He is worthy of praise. Paul says, just think about it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he could become his counselor? Or who has first given to God that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know, when you take your study guide home, even if you're not in a small group, I want you to take it home. And I want you to turn to the first question. In Romans chapters 1 to 11, Paul gives us a panorama of God's plan of salvation for the whole race. Tell your personal story of God's work in your life in forgiveness, sanctification, and growth and grace. Can you see the panorama of your life? There's a whole page. I'd like you to take this home, and sometime this week, I'd like you to sit down with a pen or a pencil and open to that page and say, God, remind me. Take me back. Remind me what I was before I met you. Remind me how you found me. Remind me how you've loved me. Remind me how you saved me. Remind me what you've done in my life. Remind me when you filled me with your Spirit. Remind me when you showed me your glory. Remind me, remind me of what you've done in my life. And then praise him. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Can you see it in your life just as we see it in the world? Can you see it in your life? Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the powerful doxology, the, the hymn of praise existing in these verses. Lord, we praise you and we give you glory. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.